Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Job chapter 29. Not to mention that we have a newlywed Job with us today. Job and Courtney, good to have you. In our passage this morning in Job, we're going to be looking at three chapters. But they give us a, a theme that I think in many ways prefigures the glory of Jesus Christ. So the passage that we'll be looking at is going to be concerning Job, but Job will become a picture of Christ. As you look at the, uh, the three chapters on the outline, uh, chapter 29 will present Job as he is reflecting back on his glory days when he was highly exalted among the community before his afflictions came upon him. That'll be chapter 29. Chapter 30, he will recount for us again his great affliction and just all the struggles and all of the, the shame and all the difficulties that he's, he's had because of these judgments that have fallen upon him. And then in chapter 31, Job will lay out in a marvelous way uh, his own innocence, his own righteousness, so that we have an incredible picture of an unjust sufferer. And in that, he gives us an incredible foreshadowing of the glory of our Savior as being the greatest sufferer who did not suffer because of his own sin and became our Savior instead. So how are we to understand this suffering? Well, again, Job, as he is working through the confusion of being a righteous man and yet receiving all of these afflictions from God, which according to their theology, he should not because they hold to retributive justice that a man reaps what he sows. So if you sow good things... God will bless you with good things. If you sow sin and bad things, God will judge you and curse you with bad things. Well, Job has been judged and cursed with bad things, but he is convinced in his heart that he is innocent, that he is righteous. And indeed, that is God's opinion of him as well. So we know that to be true. He is an unjust sufferer. He is suffering, but not because he deserves it, because of his own personal sin. Now, this is not saying that he is without sin completely, but he is convinced in his mind that he has not committed great sins to bring such great suffering upon him. So, how does he work through this? Well, at the end of chapter 28, in verse 28, Job has told us how he has come to grips with the reality of his suffering, though he doesn't believe it's justified. And he says in verse 28, that behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. In effect, he's saying, though I don't understand why God is treating me this way, my conscience is clear. I don't understand the ways of God, but I nevertheless fear God. And I know that we should turn away and depart from evil. That is wisdom. That is understanding. That is what I'm committed to doing. So that's that's basically where he's come to so far. But we also know that within this passage, we see this incredible example of an innocent person suffering. And this is why I think there's another reason that the Holy Spirit has intended to give us within the book, and that is a redemptive purpose reason for Job's sufferings. That Job's sufferings are to prefigure the sufferings of someone else who is far more innocent than even Job was, who is far more exalted than Job was, who is greatly afflicted far more than Job was. And yet, Job's sufferings will prefigure for us none other than the person of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it appears to me that 
God has intended to foreshadow the glory of Jesus Christ and this suffering example of Job. So what we're going to look at briefly is the life of Job and through the lenses of typology, seeing Job as a type of Jesus Christ. Now, what is typology? Typology is not the study of learning how to type. Typology is actually the study of types. And what is a type? Well, a type, as we understand it in Scripture, is a historical event, person, or institution designed by God that prefigures and anticipates another greater event or person of similar resemblance. Now that's a mouthful. But uh, there are several key elements in this definition. A type, first off, is a historical event or person. It's not just something, it's not a made up story or a myth. It's actually a historical person or a historical event that God has chosen to prefigure another event, a greater event. This is designed by God. It's not accidental. It's not just by circumstance. It is an event or person designed by God to prefigure and anticipate another greater event. So there is a predictive element to a type. So a type is almost like a prophecy. A prophecy is a predictive word. A type is a predictive event. So they are both pointing forward to a future event or a future person. This event or person will be far greater than the actual type. And this predicted event or person we refer to as the anti-type. It's greater, it's more glorious than the actual Old Testament picture that is being presented. The type and its future fulfillment is ultimately connected by a similar resemblance. There is an escalation to a greater person And usually these types will revolve around the person and work of Jesus Christ, though not exclusively. There are many, many different types in the Old Testament. Some of them are listed in the New Testament. Adam is a type of Christ in Romans 5. All the animal skins, even in the Garden of Eden and the later animal sacrifices, present us a picture of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The Garden of Eden is a type or a picture or a, pre, uh, a foreshadowing, if you will, of the much greater glorious new heavens and new earth. You can find that in Ezekiel 36 and Revelation 22. Noah's Ark is a type or a picture or a foreshadowing of the greater work of Christ being saved in Christ as the people were saved in Noah's Ark in 1 Peter 3. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Though not mentioned in the New Testament, most everyone agrees that that also is a picture of God the Father sacrificing His only begotten covenant Son. And even when Isaac was made to carry his wood that he would be sacrificed upon is a picture of Jesus carrying the cross to the place of crucifixion. We find the high priest Melchizedek and an amazing picture of the coming of the greater high priest Jesus Christ in Hebrews 7. Joseph betrayed by his brothers and rising to the second in command of Egypt is is a foreshadowing of the glory of Jesus Christ. Moses is a type of Christ as a mediator in Hebrews 3. The whole work of Exodus, the deliverance of Israel out from the bondage of Egypt is a foreshadowing and picture of Christ redeeming His people out of the darkness and slavery of sin. Remember, even in Luke chapter 9 in the, in the uh, transfiguration account, when Jesus appeared, Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus in His glory, that Luke indicates what they were talking about. And he says that Jesus was talking to them about His exodus. 
His deliverance of His people. And we know that He's also the Passover Lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. The Passover Lamb prefigured the coming of the death of Christ to save the firstborn from the curse of death. There's a parallel there. He's the brazen serpent in John 3 that was lifted up on the standard so that all those have been bitten by the snake and were dying. By just merely looking at the brazen serpent, they would live. They would be healed. And Jesus says that He must also be lifted up as the brazen serpent was lifted up. The manna in John 6, Jesus says that is a picture of Him. He's the true manna, the true bread that came down out of heaven. The temple itself is a picture, a type of the far greater temple of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, dwelling among us, tabernacling among us. So there are many types, many pictures of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. And I think Job is another. In this sense that Job being highly exalted, greatly afflicted, and utterly innocent is a picture of the glory of Christ. Well, let's kind of walk through some of what this is uh, unfolding for us. And as we begin in Job chapter 29, Job now is... um, Thinking back on the good old days, so to speak. He's thinking about the days before all these judgments and disasters came into his life. The physical afflictions, pain and suffering. When he was highly exalted within the community. We start reading in verse 2 of chapter 29. He says, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone over my head, and by His light I walked through darkness. As I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was with me, and my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. And here he's just remembering the days when his life was so blessed by God. He had all of his children around him. He said that even my my feet were bathed in butter. Now, I don't know what that would feel like, but I guess back in those days, that was a sign of a great blessing and prosperity. And no doubt it would indicate butter comes from milk, milk comes from the animals, that his flocks were so productive that he had the luxury of giving himself feet butter baths. So this is just kind of the, the luxury that he lived in. His olive trees were so laden with a bumper crop that the, that the rock, the, the olive presses, just squeezed out so much olive oil that it just flowed like rivers. And of course, olive oil was used for cooking and fuel in their lamps and ointment for their body. So Job is remembering the days when everything was just so incredible. He was enjoying his wealth. His life was just full of luxuries. In verse 7 through 11, he talks about how he was honored by the young and the old. In verse 7, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. And the old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard it, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw it, gave witness of me. So here Job talks about when he would go out to the gate of the city. And the gate of the city is where all the elders and the judges would congregate and they would gather. At the gate of the city is where the business transactions occurred and where the, really the seat of government was back in these ancient days that all occurred at the gate of the city. It was like their, their city hall or their town square. And Job is saying that when he went out to the gate, everybody stopped and listened. Even the young and the old, the princes, when Job walked out there, 
everybody would stop and honor him. Now, there's an, uh, an old vintage commercial that some of y'all may remember back in the 70s and 80s. It was uh, the, of the brokerage firm E.F. Hutton. If you remember that commercial, and it used to always go, there's a real busy crowd, maybe he's at a pool party or someone, and, and a representative from E.F. Hutton would walk out, and he would lean over and start talking to someone, and everybody else in the whole place would stop, and they would bend their ear to listen to him because his words were just so valuable for investing or whatever it might be. And that's the picture you get of Job. When Job walked into the city hall, When he walked into the halls of government, everybody stopped and shut up and listened. The young revered him. The old people honored and respected him. This is Job. This is a man of God. This is a man of authority and influence. And everybody respected him. In verses 12-17, through he talks about the righteousness of of His judgments within the community. In verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper, the blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame and a father to the needy. And I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. And so what Job is really recounting in this passage, you can almost see again some of the the exaltation of Jesus Christ in a very faint shadowy form. But he would clothe himself in righteousness. And justice was his robe and his turban. And when Job rendered a verdict or a decision, it was the right one. Because he had the wisdom of God, the justice, the righteousness of God filling his heart and his mind. And in this sense, he, he dealt fairly and justly with the poor, the orphan, the widow, the handicapped, the blind, the lame, they were all under His care. And even in verse 17, He sought to break the power of the oppressors. If there was injustice going on in the courts, if there was injustice going on in, in, in the business, He would break the jaws. He would break the teeth of those people. That's how committed to righteousness this godly man was. This is Job. Highly exalted. In verses 18 through 20, he talks about his confidence in the future. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. And so here, Job is just saying that back in those days, I thought. The good days would never end. I would grow old. I would die in my nest because God honors those who honor Him. And I have honored God and God will honor me. See, he he held to that view of retributive justice as well. He trusted that his life would be smooth and easy and prosperous to the very end of his life because that's how God deals with people, right? People get what they, they, they reap what they sow. And he's committed. He's been a good man, a godly man, and God should reward him. And so he's remembering back upon those days when everything was so, so wonderful. In verse 21 through 25, we see again a picture of his status within the community. He says, To me they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they didn't speak again. And my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain. And opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe. And the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops. As one who comforted the mourners. 
And here Job is recounting his status, his prestige among the people. He was looked upon as a chief in verse 25, as a king who ruled in righteousness. So you can see this faint picture of the glory of Christ even before His incarnation. As Job was highly exalted, there's been no one more highly exalted than Christ in heaven. Infinitely more exalted than Job. Worshipped by angels and saints above, shared the eternal glory of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He was the Creator of all things. He was the Ruler of all things. Christ was highly exalted. And, and Job becomes a faint foreshadowing of the glory of Christ in that way. Well, in chapter 30, we now come to Job being greatly afflicted. God gave in chapter 29... And the Lord is taken away now in chapter 30 because Job is being rejected by both men and God. In verse 30, verse, chapter 30, verse 1, he says, And now those younger than I mock me, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. And in the rest of this paragraph, Job just talks about all of the, the scum of society, the lowly, the, the degenerate, the despised of society are now the ones that are mocking him. So as Job has exchanged the respect of the most respectable in the community, he now has from the community the contempt of the most contemptible. So from being greatly exalted, he is now greatly afflicted. Notice again in verse 1 that the young people who before would cover their mouth and stand up in honor whenever Job walked into the room, now they're despising him. They're mocking him. And you can sense a little flavor of what the Lord Jesus went through. Even when He was on the cross, remember how He was mocked and despised. He who was highly exalted as God the Son, yet so greatly afflicted. And the people would say to Him, He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel, then let Him come down from the cross and we shall believe in Him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver Him now if He delights in Him. And oh, how the Lord was mocked by the rabble as well. If you drop down, for example, to verse 9, it says, And now I have become their taunt. I have even become a byword to them. They abhor me and stand aloof from me. And they do not refrain from spitting at my face. So Job is... Outside the city, he's in the ash dump. He is there in all of his misery. And these young people who should show respect to their elders show him none. They walk up to him and in disdain they spit in his face. And again, there's a faint echo of that greater innocent sufferer who in Matthew 26 would have those who despised Him come up and spit in His face. The Lord Jesus. We also read in verses 16-23, through 23, not only is Job rejected by men, but he's also rejected by God. In verse 16 of chapter 30, we read, and now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force my garment is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. 
I cry out to you for help. He's crying out to God. But you have not answered me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride. And you dissolve me in a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. And so in this very sad, tragic, mournful account, Job is now saying, God, You have turned against me. You have rejected me. He says in verse 17 that my, there's a piercing of my bones and a, and a gnawing pain of my body. And, and he says also that he, in verse 16, that his soul has been poured out. What, what's interesting is this language is, is found again in Psalm 22, a prophetic psalm speaking of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Where again it speaks of his soul being poured out, his body being pierced. The very same language that Job is using here of himself. In verse 20 we read, that he has cried out to God, but God has not answered. And I think we see in this a bit of a parallel again of the agony of Christ, possibly in the Garden of Gethsemane when He's crying out, Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from Me, but not My will, but Thy will be done. The Lord doesn't grant His request, even though He humbly submits to the will of His Father. Or possibly there's an echo here of the Lord on the cross when He is suffering and agonizing and being pierced and He's crying out to God. But Job is experiencing this great affliction from being highly exalted. Now he is experiencing this incredible affliction. In verses 24-31, through 31, he accounts more of his just the agony of his suffering how He extended mercy to others, but has received none in return. Verse 24, Yet does not one in a heap of ruin stretch out His hand? Or in His disaster therefore cry out for help? Have I not wept for the one whose life is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. I am seething within and cannot relax. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning without comfort. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I have become a brother to jackals and a companion of ostriches. Jackals and ostriches dwelt out in the the deserts, the desolate, lonely places. Jackals are known for their wailing cry and ostriches are just known for for their aloneness. And he's saying, that is my family now. Verse 30, my skin turns black on me and my bones burn with fever. Again, part of the, the physical agony of those sores that came upon him affecting his skin, his body, the fever burning within him. Verse 31, therefore my harp is turned to mourning. And my flute, this, this instrument of joy and happiness to the sound of those who now weep. So he's recounting his excruciating suffering being rejected not only by man, but also by God. So that's chapter 30. And so now we come to chapter 31. And this is what makes his Suffering so painful, so inconceivable is because of his commitment to his own innocence. He is not suffering because of something he has done. He is suffering for other reasons. He's utterly innocent. And so all of chapter 31, Job now just lays out his case before God that I am innocent And he calls upon God to render a verdict in his case. It's interesting as you look through this passage that again, Job is not recounting this in a a spirit of self-righteousness. No, he is exactly righteous and true in what he's saying. 
Again, as I mentioned earlier, God has already testified to this in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Job. God said about him, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That is God's opinion of Job. He was a godly man. And yet he is suffering so violently. And this is what he doesn't understand because he holds to retributive justice as well. God, you should bless those who do good. I have done good. You have not blessed me. You have judged me. You have brought these disasters in my life. I do not understand what you're doing. So in chapter 31, he just lays out his affidavit of innocence. He brings forth an oath of innocence before God. So he begins in in verse 1 of chapter 31. And he's going to list throughout this chapter ten different categories of sins that are common in society that he has kept himself pure from. That he has not fallen into. So he starts with lust in verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above? Or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust? And disaster to those who work in equity? See, that's that retributive justice. He understands that. He believes it. Verse 4, Does He not see my ways and number all my steps? So He begins by saying that I have not committed myself to lust after a virgin. I have guarded my eyes. And then he begins to walk through all these other categories of sins. Falsehood, in verse 5-8, through he has not given way to, to lying or cheating. He speaks of adultery in verses 9-12. through He has guarded his heart. He has not fallen into the sin of adultery. He has not mistreated his servants in verses 13 through 15. He has not abused the needy, but in fact, he has been a blessing to the poor, the widow, and the orphan. In verses 24 through 28, he says, I have not fallen guilty to idolatry. I have not made money, my God, nor have I worshipped the sun or the moon. I have not been guilty of the various forms of idolatry that were prevalent within his culture. I have not rejoiced at the fall of my enemies. When my enemies fell into calamities, I did not rejoice in their falling. I didn't neglect the traveler. I provided for them. I fed them. I have not concealed my sin. I have been very honest before God. And finally, I have not abused the land. Verses 38-40. through And in all of this, throughout, sprinkled throughout this chapter, Job has been very careful to lay out before God that God, if I had committed any of these sins, may You bring Your curse upon me. And he repeats this over and over again. Let me just highlight some of it for you. In verse 3, he laid out the general principle that God brings calamity to the unjust and disaster to sinners. That's the general principle of retributive justice. And then in verse 8, he says, if I've been guilty of falsehood, then let me sow and another reap. Let my crops be uprooted. So he said, if I've been guilty of those kinds of sins, Lord, may You bring this judgment upon me. In verse 10, after he said he has not committed and been involved in any adultery, He said, if I have, God, if I have been guilty of adultery, then may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. Bring a curse down upon me, Lord. If I'm guilty of that sin, then You bring that judgment upon me. I would deserve it. And Lord, You do that if I'm guilty of that, but I'm not. In verse 22, after he is recounted the abuse, not abusing the needy. 
He says, if I have abused the needy, let my shoulder fall from its socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. And finally in verse 40, he says after he said he had not abused the land or stolen things from others, if I have done that, God, let briars grow instead of wheat, let stinkweed grow instead of barley. And in all of this, Job is just laying forth basically, as it were, in a court of law, his affidavit, his oath to innocence in all these areas of sin. I mean, he was an incredibly godly man. And he's willing to call down God's wrath upon his head if in fact he was guilty of any of these sins. So that was a motivation for him to live godly because he feared the judgment of God. He feared God. And he knew that if he gave himself to any of these sins, then God would bring judgments upon him justly. And he is arguing that that has not been the case. And then number two, in verses 35 through 37, he appeals to God for an answer. If you look at verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. In other words, he's laid out all these crimes saying I've been innocent of them. It's like an affidavit and I'm signing it. This is my oath of innocence before you God. I'm signing all these accusations, all these categories of sin. Lord, I've kept myself free from them. Oh, if there is someone to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversary has written. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and I would bind it to myself like a crown. That is, if God justly rendered His verdict that He was innocent, then He would glory in that. He would wear it as a crown. He would carry it on His shoulder that God has finally rendered a verdict of His innocence. But He's calling upon God to do that. Verse 37, I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. So in all of this, Job now is calling upon God as a judge in a courtroom to render his verdict on the matter. He demands that God give a verdict because God is His witness. And notice, if you look carefully at verse 35, He refers to the Almighty. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written. Who's the adversary in verse 35? Who is Job's adversary? He doesn't know that it's Satan. That's not information that he has. This is God. I think that should be a capital A. I think Job is crying out to the Almighty to answer him and the indictment which, which his adversary has, has brought upon him because he believes that all of these judgments, all of these afflictions come directly from God. God has become his adversary. And this is part of the torture of his mind. Is on the one hand, he can call God his, his advocate, but on the other hand, he believes God is his adversary remember earlier in the book of job some of the things that job said he cried out in chapter 9 oh if there would be an umpire between us between him and god who may lay his hand upon us both job is desired that someone could intervene between him and god and bring peace in job chapter 16 verse 19 He says, even now my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. And here he's referring to God. He believes that God really knows that he's innocent. That God really should be his advocate. Because he is an innocent, righteous man. He's calling upon God to bear witness to his righteousness and his innocence. And then in chapter 19... He says, and as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. He believes that God is the only one who can redeem him and vindicate him from all of his suffering, which he believes is unjust. So here's the torture of Job's mind. On the one hand, 
He believes that God is his adversary. On the other, God is his advocate. God, which are you? Are you my advocate? Are you my witness? Are you my redeemer? Or are you my adversary? Render a verdict. Because I am suffering unjustly and I don't understand why you're doing this to me. So he's crying out in the confusion of the agony of his suffering. Does that remind you of someone? Someone hanging on a cross? Someone who for a brief moment has lost sight of the glory of His Father who doesn't understand why He is suffering. And He cries out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? So that in the very agony of Job's suffering as an innocent sufferer, we see but a faint foreshadowing of the far greater, more glorious, innocent sufferer of the Lord Jesus Christ when He hung upon the cross to save us from our sins. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Job could say exactly the same thing. What Job longed for was a mediator. And we know that that mediator has come. And there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. What Job longed for was an advocate. And we have that advocate in Jesus Christ. For if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Job is still trying to fit the pieces of the puzzle together. But he's calling upon God to render a verdict. And in all of this innocent suffering of Job, we see a a beautiful picture, a foreshadowing of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. Again, Jesus, like Job, only in a far greater, infinite, more glorious way, is an and was an innocent sufferer. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus had no sin at all. Job had sin. Apparently no great sins, but He was still a sinner. Jesus had no sin at all. So that Job's innocence prefigures a greater innocent one in the Lord Jesus Peter says that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's the glory of the Lord Jesus that Job prefigures. This innocence that is typified in Job and fulfilled in the antitype of Jesus Christ was also pictured in the animal sacrifices. That's why the lambs had to be unblemished. They had to be without spot without defect, to be a picture of this innocence, this purity, this this holiness for the one who is the sacrifice. And so you find this innocent sufferer continued on in other types and pictures of the Old Testament. But there is an additional thought that's not spelled out here in Job that we find in other places. For example, the Isaiah 53 passage that we've read earlier. That not only does Job prefigure Jesus as an innocent sufferer, but we find in addition to that, that the Old Testament presents this ultimate innocent sufferer, the Messiah, as being a sacrifice for us, a substitute for us. So in Isaiah 53, as we've already read, this picture goes beyond what we find in Job. But we find in Isaiah 53 that this innocent sufferer will bear the sins of others. Not his own sin, but the sin of others. For surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through not for His own transgressions, but for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. 
and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. See, Job presents us this incredible picture of an innocent sufferer. Isaiah brings in the glory that he suffered innocently, not for his own sin, but for ours. And that's the glory of Jesus Christ. What's interesting in the book of Job, by the time we get to the last chapter, though Job is longing for a mediator, he's longing for an advocate, he will actually become a mediator and an advocate for his three friends. Because God will hold them accountable for sinful words. And He will call upon Job to pray for them. And as they must bring a sacrifice, the prayers of Job now forgives their sins and makes them accepted before God. So that Job, by the time we get to the end of the book, will add in this additional beautiful picture for casting the glory of Christ and not only being highly exalted and greatly afflicted like Job was and utterly innocent like Job, but He'll be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect mediator, the one who will bring about the acceptance and forgiveness of the sins of His friends. And He will complete this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ found in the life of Job. So in all of this, what Job has prefigured for us is what we have come to celebrate in communion this morning. That as Job was highly exalted, no one was more highly exalted than Jesus Christ, who is a Son of God reigning in heaven, loved, worshipped, adored by angels and men. And yet He came down in His humiliation and became a man. And He lived a sinless life so that He would suffer on the cross. Not suffer for His sins, but to suffer for our sins. So He was greatly afflicted, far greater than the afflictions of Job. He was utterly innocent, holy, the pure Son of God, who gave Himself as a sacrifice and substitute for sinners like us. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the mediator. And all that we saw in Job is a very faint shadow form of the glory of Jesus Christ as our innocent sufferer who sacrificed Himself for our sins. And that's what we see in a little picture form developing in the book of Job, which points forward to the greatest of all, the Lord Jesus. Well, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the fact that He was highly exalted, greatly afflicted, utterly innocent, and the glorious substitute and sacrifice for our sins. This is what we need to glory in as we celebrate communion. That when Jesus died, He didn't die for His own sin. He was an innocent sufferer, but He died for our sins. And in our heart, we should worship Him for that. And we should think about how greatly afflicted He was on the cross as He bore the wrath of God, the pain, the hell, the punishment, the curse that we deserve for our sin. He bore that for us in our place as our sacrifice, as our substitute. So we can glory in what the Lord has done. This is the Lord's Supper not the Supper of Northwest Bible Church. So we invite anyone here this morning that has placed your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you from your sins, to examine your own heart, confess any sin the Spirit might convict you of, and then freely partake, remembering Jesus, celebrating His sacrifice, His love for us in dying for our sins. If you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, and please observe. Consider the fact that you have sinned against God. There is a day of judgment to come and you will stand before the holy righteous judge and must give an account of every thought and word and deed. And you will stand condemned. 
And you will be punished by God justly forever. Jesus offers you forgiveness. He offers you redemption and salvation. But you must repent and believe in Christ. And our heart desire is for you to do that this morning. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Come to Christ. His arms are open. He will receive you. Come to Him and be saved. As we break the bread, we use unleavened bread because that typifies for us and symbolizes the innocence of this sufferer. Unleavened bread, He had no leaven of sin, no evil, no wickedness of any kind, so He could take our place and bear our sins. We break the bread as an audible reminder of just the physical excruciating torture and torment that Jesus was willing to endure because He loved you and me. And He was willing to die for us and to save us from our sins. He was crushed for our iniquity. i tell you what, for, uh, let me go ahead and pray. This would be a good time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that throughout the canvas of history, Your providential control has been glorified to draw and paint and sketch for us all these little pictures of the glory of Jesus Christ. Each one in and of itself is incomplete and doesn't do justice. But in some way, they point forward to the glory of our Savior. And now, Father, it's our privilege now to utilize another symbol of the death of Christ, His body being torn and crucified as He bore the weight of our sin out of His great love for us. And so, Father, we just want to thank You for the bread. Thank You for the love and the sacrifice, the purity, the holiness, the redemption that we have in Jesus. And we give You praise in His name. Amen.